You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. and publications and welcome to Poetry and Conversation. So thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, We hope you'll also join us for some additional upcoming events. On November 15th, Barrett Warner and Meg Eden are reading in this room at 6.30. Um, And then on Wednesday, December 7th at 6.30 p.m., um, we have Emily by Heart, which is a special Poems by Heart to celebrate Emily Dickinson's birthday. Yeah. So if you want to hear more about upcoming programs, you can sign up for our email list, which is in the hallway, um, and you can also pick up copies of Compass. So tonight, we are very excited to welcome two talented writers, Celeste Stokes and Jane Satterfield. Uh, Each poet is going to read, then we'll have a joint Q&A, and then they'll each finish with a closing poem or two. And then there'll be time for you to continue to mingle, buy books which are on sale in the hallway. Uh, So to start, it is my honor to introduce you all to Celeste Stokes. Poet and journalist, she is the author of Cornrows and Cornfields. Uh, Cornrows was listed as one of the 10 best books of 2015 by Beltway Quarterly. Her journalism has appeared in the Huffington Post, The Village Voice, Time Out New York, and QBR. Celeste received her MFA from North Carolina State University, and she currently teaches creative writing at Morgan State. Uh, And she also has a chapbook coming out soon from Mason Jar Press, which is a local press that supports literary arts. Um, So you'll be hearing about that, I'm sure, in 2017. So you can have accolades as Dokes does, but it takes special writers to foster connections throughout their work. Or as Bonnie Greer writes, the human stuff. There are the ways, the senses, the sounds, smell, and touch that make each person unique, but also makes it possible to understand one another. So as Dokes writes, childhood scents are the rungs of the ladder we climb every day of our adult lives. While reading Cornrows and Cornfields, you forget exact time and place because you're reading a writer that captures these multiple voices that get into all these sensory elements. Um, So you can also have great mentors, as Stokes has, in Patricia Smith and others, but it's up to the writer to become that fiery truth teller. As she writes, she has been taught to be since childhood. And as you hear when she reflects on refusing to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, when she writes, he would always be the first bright white boulder crashing into this dark pool with liberty and justice for none. So please give a fiery welcome to Celeste Stokes. Good evening. Thank you, first of all, uh, to Tracy Diamond, uh, who has been fantastic through all of her emails and setting up this event and talking to Jane and I. Um, She's been a fantastic uh, coordinator and programs assistant. Um, I also 
wrote a couple of other thank yous that I want to do before I get started with my reading. This evening, I want to thank uh, the lovely Judy Cooper, who is the head of programs and publications here at the Enoch Pratt Library. Um, she is a fellow Hoosier, Midwestern homegirl. Uh, she went to IU, though. That's, that's slightly problematic for me because I'm went to Purdue. But anyway, um, and I also just, uh, I told her earlier today, I was very happy to hear that she had received an award from the City Lit organization for her service to the literary arts. So I'm very happy and thankful uh, to Judy. And also I want to thank, um, who's not in the audience today, uh, Mr. Johnny Fields, uh, who was a colleague of mine at Morgan State University a long time ago. He told me about a fantastic lady named uh, Judy Cooper, and I'm happy to have met her now. And the last um, thank yous uh, that are really important, I realized that I read I rarely thank my publisher um, when I've been reading, I mean, recently, um, Wrecking Ball Press in Hull, UK. Uh, my book was originally published there, and my publisher, who is Shane Rhodes, and also my, his assistant director, Russ Litton, um, their encouragement was invaluable, really, in bringing this book to fruition. So I really should be thanking them more often, but I'm doing it today. Um, I think they saw something in my manuscript that uh, many others passed over, and it's really a privilege to have Corn Rose come out on that label. Um, and also my friends and colleagues who are in the audience. So those are the thank yous. Hope they were pretty quick today. Um, so I'm starting off actually with a poem that is not mine. It's a, an odd way to start off a reading. It's a very short poem. Um, I've been doing some thinking. I haven't been reading, um, doing a lot of readings for my book in the past, I would say, three or four months. So I've had a long time to be thinking about what's going on in the world. Um, there's lots of things going on in terms of police brutality, racial tension, uh, the election is going on, right? We have all these things sort of playing in our head, right? Um, but one of the things is, you know, Oftentimes when we think about art or I'm thinking about art and how it affects the world, sometimes maybe we get disappointed about um, maybe the effect that we think art is having on the world. But I was sort of, um, I guess, inspired by going to the National Museum of African American Art in D.C. It was my first time going there. And um, what was beautiful to me is on the way out of the museum, on all of these big walls, they had, uh, you know, just tons of writers, of African-American writers and people who I'd look up to, and their words were kind of on the wall as you were exiting the museum. One of my students uh, actually just came back from the museum, too. And so I thought that was really inspirational to think about how art is uh, constantly sort of shepherding us towards um, thinking about the world in different ways. So with that in mind, the first poem I'm going to read is by um, a writer who I like a lot. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of him, but it's about um, the death of Eric Garner, who uh, died in New York at the hands of police. Uh, they said that uh, he actually asked, told them that he could not breathe 11 times before he passed. And this is a tiny poem, not really about his death, but about his life. It's called A Small Needful Fact by Ross Gay. A small needful fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Recreation Horticulture Department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which, most likely, some of them, in all likelihood, continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us all to breathe. And the first poem that I would like to read actually also has an epigraph from Ross Gay, um, and it includes the line that Tracy sort of included in my introduction. 
Um, the poem's title is Memory Before Body. Um, there are a number of poems in my collection that are about my father. Uh, my father worked at a paint corporation for um, multiple decades. Uh, it was called O'Brien's. It was in the Midwest in Indiana. Um, and this poem is uh, sort of a poem from a child who didn't maybe quite understand everything that the parent, the father, had done. Um, but and hopefully you can understand some of that when I read it. It's called Memory Before Body. And the epigraph reads, if there is a history, then I do not own it. And that also is by Ross Gay. Childhood scents are the rungs of a ladder we climb every day of our adult lives. We remember to climb gently, each footstep recalling mama's chocolate chip cookies at Christmas time or the tinge of bleach wafting through the air from a freshly mopped kitchen floor. Or maybe a father's piney sawdust just beyond the garage door hinge. These ghosts we greet each morning, waking to sunlight, falling through blinds, the apparitions the nose knows. Even now, a crimson spray can paint perched right outside my brownstone window conjures his after-five arrival from O'Brien's. The reek of fumes comes back, his blue work coat soiled as he peeked throughout the house for me. But before his afro and steel toe boots would appear, turpentine, thinner, and solvent were there. Before he could round the corners of our stucco walls, I held his whole day inside my lungs. The heated words cast down from white superiors, the lunch banter of men, the thousands of hours gone by waiting for the minute hand to cross over to five. Um, this poem, uh, I guess, is maybe a little bit more upbeat. It also is about my father. Uh, I tell the story often that my mother and father never knew um, when my mother was pregnant whether they were having a boy or a girl. Um, my father was very excited to have a boy, but he got a girl, right? Um, and so because of that, I think my father uh, thought that he would often do a lot of uh, boy inspiration boy-themed and boy-inspired events with me, right? So one of the things my father liked to do is, like, take me out and, you know, I'd wash the car or we'd mow the lawn or, you know, we'd do all these things that I really didn't quite understand, right? And so uh, this, one of them turned into a poem. It's called Father-Daughter Time, and it has an epigraph um, that's kind of ironic and funny. It's by Allen Ginsberg. The epigraph reads, Everything is holy, everybody's holy, everywhere is holy, every day is an eternity, every man's an angel. That's by Allen Ginsberg. Father-daughter time was his ritual of running water in a red plastic bucket. The chamois and the palm olive with its emerald green tint. Our Saturday afternoons, he would always take me, the oldest girl, out back to scrub the grime. The layer of dust, thin as a spider web, from being at the paint factory during the days and the Why Not pub the nights the garage was empty. Oh, what a blessing to watch his hands working, wiping the hood clean to perfection, the same way a carpenter sands two wooden planks into a seamless dream. Even the raised chrome got special attention, the way I wished my announcements of another A would elicit a grin. But instead, this was our father-daughter time, his kneeling on one knee, hands baptized in suds, scrubbing the sapphire paint spotless, his asking me to brillo pad the white walls. He stressed their importance, saying they must be as pristine as the cloth, the tablecloth at the Last Supper. Um, I'm glad that one 
got a laugh, right? Um, the next poem I'm going to read uh, actually was nominated. This poem was nominated for a pushcart um, last year. It did not win, but I'm very honored that uh, it was nominated for a pushcart prize. Um, this, this is one of the odd poems in the book that is not based in uh, the Midwest. It's not based in Indiana. Um, this poem was actually written in North Carolina uh, where I got my graduate degree. Um, I spent a lot of times, obviously, you know, in grad school, we spent a lot of time at coffee houses. Um, and so this poem was written at a coffee house. And it actually is a really good example of how I stick my foot in my mouth a lot. Um, and so this poem is kind of representative of that. And um, it is slightly, I guess you would say, humorous here. It's called For the Chef at Helios, whose name I do not know. The conversation starts with peanut butter. As the guy with the wired rim glasses grabs the stool next to me, asking if I enjoyed my PB&J sandwich. His sapphire blue pools almost distract me before I begin to critique it in classic Virgo style. It was too grainy, and it wasn't sweet enough, and didn't I taste a hint of cinnamon? Meanwhile, my eye catches a robin building a nest just outside the glass window of Helios. The robin places sticks, sorted pieces of cloth and debris bit by bit into a cone shape. The robin is unafraid to build what may not hold, as we, two strangers, teeter towards connection. Steam rises from new lattes and fingers tap on laptops constructing lines of nothingness. As our chat comes to a close, he admits he's the chef that makes the peanut butter fresh every day. Oh, saintly chef, you do this daily, never knowing when or if anyone will ever eat it until someone like me arrives, orders your labor of love, devours the sandwich, and then analyzes it like a term paper. How many of us never stop to think about your hands, shelling the nuts one by one, gently blending the oil into a crunchy pulp, each step so delicate, so purposeful, like a beak pushing each twig into its perfect position? I'm also going to read, uh, this next poem is still, is still in my book, but I'm going to read a couple of poems that um, actually are ekphrastic poems. Um, for those of you who don't know that big literary word, ekphrastic poem just simply means um, a poem that's written about art. Um, I'm very interested in visual art. I spend a lot of time at uh, museums looking at visual art. Um, and although all of those poems are not represented in my first collection, um, I wanted to read one from my collection and then one that exists actually in my chapbook that's coming out. Um, so I think uh, this poem, a little background on the poem, is about Frida Kahlo. For those of you uh, who don't know her, she's a Mexican artist. Um, she's revered for her uh, work, but she's also, uh, the stories that surround Frida Kahlo are also um, sort of uh, the thing that, most people know that she had a tragic accident when she was very young on a bus uh, where her pelvis was severed. Um, and she also spent a lot of time with her husband, Diego Rivera. Um, and the epigraph in this, in this poem sort of gives you a little explanation about their relationship. It says, Frida Kahlo was often referred to her friends as the dove. And Diego Rivera, her husband, was sometimes called an elephant due to his heavy stat stature. And the poem is called The Elephant Speaks to the Dove. It's in the uh, voice of Diego Rivera. Carnino, your dreams did not die in the bow of that school bus. A silent canary coming to pierce your spine, pelvis, collarbone, but no derailed thief could steal your proud gorilla reds. 
You pray for death, but I save your breaths on a spindle. Weave airy wool as you slumber. Tuck them like socks in our armoire that I will someday give to our three children whose cheeks will never know our kisses. Your body is not broken, but rather a delicate vase of cracked glass that smiles under Koyakon's soul. It sits on my heart's shelf, devoid of flowers, but glorious in its own emptiness. I know that pain splits your body like a lightning bolt. It's electric currents driving you to bottles of Patron, the liquor a salve for your bleeding soul. You worship painkillers and the paintbrush. They become your only God, and I do not help matters much with my disobedient penis poking the pistols of other flowers. Lo siento, mi amor. But when I gaze at you, draped in ornate Mexican dress, flawed and flawless, debilitated and divine, how your mouth full of four-letter abrasions, how you prepare my lunches while I labor over luxurious murals, how your bird-like hands bathe this elephant body, I am nothing but grateful your white wings have descended on me with fire and alegria. Um, and the next one that I would like to read is not in my first book, um, but it also is an ekphrastic poem. Um, another thing that I was doing when I was doing some research on visual art is um, I was paying a lot of attention to all of the um, changes in artwork that Michelle Obama was doing in the White House when she first got there. Of course, now they're on their transition, uh, her and Barack are on their transition out. But uh, Michelle Obama, when she got into the White House, she uh, changed a lot of the paintings that were on the wall. Some of you may know the story. Um, she got rid of a lot of the pastorals and the agrarian sort of artwork, and she replaced it with contemporary artwork. I was very interested in, like, you know, what is she picking and why, you know, right? All of these sorts of things, right? Um, and she picked a myriad of things um, from all different ethnicities and, you know, it spanned a, a wide um, variety of work that she sort of took. But one of the paintings, um, well, actually, she examined two, but she only picked one. Um, Alma Thomas was an expressionist painter. She was actually educated um, in D.C. at, at um, Howard University. She got her art degree there. And um, she's obviously deceased. And Mrs. Obama picked um, one of her paintings, and they brought it into the White House, and then they swapped it out for another one. And um, I don't have a picture of the painting, but if you ever get the chance, you should look it up. Um, it's a very, uh, you know, sort of abstract, sort of expressionist painting with uh, blocks of color next to each other, right? And there's sort of this, like, standalone black panel in the uh, artwork that made me think maybe that might have been why uh, it was removed. So anyway, um, the poem is called For Watutsi. Watutsi is the name of this painting by Alma Thomas. Um, picked for Mrs. Obama, but swapped out for another, another painting. For Watutsi. Draped in desperate blues, Maya, Tiffany, Azure, Celeste, all play against each other. Their melodies, miles, harmonies, felonious. A few greens, a mint, or a sea green, sandwiched underneath a wicked marigold. The yellow of daffodils Mariah tried to convince Louis, Lucy to adore, the hue so alluring. In the right-hand corner, a baby pink, barely brushing a gray, like a familiar lover, or like raindrops falling over houses in Brooklyn. A red, its backbone pressed against the right-hand wall, a tall drink of water, bold, unwavering, reverberating off its partner orange along the way. But the standout is the lone black panel. 
surrounded by white spaces, deeper than the earth's mantle, an inner core hard as steel wool and complex as an aria. The letters on a book not yet written, the pepper in the pot of soup, a quarter note on a five-bar staff, a whisper turned into a shout. And the last couple of poems that I'd like to close with, I don't know how I'm doing on time here. Okay, Tracy says I'm all right. Um, I'm going to read one more childhood poem that I think is, uh, most people seem to like this one. Uh, My students, a lot of my students don't get it because, uh, you know, the millennials never uh, went roller roller skating when they were young. I don't know, so they don't, I don't know, but everyone in this this room looks like maybe they went roller skating, right? Um, But anyway, I went roller skating a lot when I was was young, so uh, I wrote a poem about it. And, you know, um, roller skating in a small Midwestern town is kind of like the only thing, place for kids to get out and things for them to do. Um, And they're all often some shady things going on in the roller rink with which the poem tries to pick up on and um you know and also but it's the place that you know children felt like they could come to escape their parents right um so that's what the roller rink was to me so I'm gonna read it it's entitled USA Roller Rink you weren't American if you didn't go there as a preteen the only place in all of rundown South Bend Indiana where young people could all escape our own private hells the Southeast Side projects, the wildness of the West Side, and the Midwestern factories closing their doors on all of our hungry mouths. Here, we were reborn in the likeness of Vince, of Vaughn Mason and the crew. Their bounce all skate looped in our ears as we took our hungry mouths and skated it all away. We were reborn and thinking that we brushed off our four wheels, used front stoppers like tricycle training wheels we would never take off. Backwards, frontwards, cross the leg over, we were indestructible, bopping to America's tune. And those who didn't skate would game in the corners. They would jolt the joystick, maneuvering Miss Pac-Man and conquering Centipede with a swiftness. And sometimes old man Rufus, complete in a shaggy overcoat, would stand near the girls' bathroom, a stray right hand rambling in his trousers, shifting from foot to foot until a cashier would scold him away from the door. But none of this mattered to us, the outer world in despair, and us inside working our legs back and forth, making sure to get the perfect crossover, dipping and diving over polished maple wood floors to whatever tune came over the speakers. And I'm just going to read, I think I'm just going to read one more because I know Tracy said we'd have a chance um, to close, read a closing poem or two, depending. Um, the last poem, um, Tracy also mentioned the anthology that I'm um, busy, well, just finished uh, editing, which has been a, a sort of long process. But anyways, uh, the anthology is uh, temporarily titled Not Without Us. It's a riff on Langston Hughes's uh, novel, Not Without Laughter. Um, I was telling Jane earlier, the uh, novel is actually a tribute, or the whole entire novel really talks about using laughter in the African-American community as a way of healing, right? And so there's a lot going on in the world today, but I feel like laughter is something that we always sort of need. Um, So the anthology that I edited is a collection of joyful and humorous um, poems. And, you know, even though it might seem like uh, humor in poems is standard, it's not really a typical thing. So um, I must say that it was an honor to really uh, edit the anthology and and examine some really uh, touching and funny and poignant moments in an anthology that's hard to uh, think about, I guess, in the current climate. 
So in any event, um, this poem is from the anthology. It's entitled um, Every Tuesday Night or Every Other Tuesday Night, I Play Trivia at Mount Vernon Marketplace. So um, this poem is called 11 Things I've Learned at Pinch's Trivia Night. And this is actually the first time I've ever read this poem, so I don't know. We'll see how this goes. Uh, Number one, don't assume your husband knows all the answers, especially when it comes to pop culture. His being an avid Cavs fan doesn't necessarily make him a sports guru. Number two, make sure to pee long before the first round starts because trying to clinch and hold it all the way through the bonus questions is absolutely ridiculous. Number three, France is the country with the largest geographical surface area out of all the EU nations. Number four, Recruit family members, work colleagues, people I met six, mo- six minutes ago, ex-boyfriends, just kidding, honey, vagabonds from the street, anyone who regards and retains minute details that I often find superfluous. Number five, imbi- imbibing lemon drop shots that you won during round one for a correct answer doesn't make your game any stronger the same way an extra beer during pool seems to sink balls quicker. Number six, Another word for the egg white is the albumin. The albus is the Latin base that means white. Next time I'm in Starbucks, I'm going to make sure to ask for an albumin and cheese sandwich and see if the cashier has any clue what I'm asking for. Number seven, Katy Perry has the most followers on Twitter, even though I guess Taylor Swift. I was wrong for thinking scandal draws people in like flies. Number eight, nerdy kids win every time. Behind their glasses, polyester slacks, and laughs that sound like snorts lurk supernatural memory skills. I wonder if they drink blueberry smoothies and eat beet salads all day. Number nine, although the hostess said no Googling allowed, some people will still sneak a glance underneath the table. Number 10, how to control my face when the table next to me high fives and squeals after discovering they got the bonus round correct. This is an invaluable skill. And the last thing, number 11, that I learned, I should have known that Edgar Allan Poe was born in Boston, Massachusetts, although he lived in Baltimore. I am a poet, for God's sakes. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Celeste. That was, that was really wonderful. Um, I'm Shailene, and I'm going to introduce our second reader, um, who is Jane Satterfield. Jane Satterfield is the recipient of awards in poetry from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Maryland Arts Council, Bellingham Review, Ledbury Poetry Festival, Myslexia, and more. Her essays have received awards from the Pirates Alley, Faulkner Society, Massachusetts Review, Florida Review, and the Heakin Foundation, among others. Her books of poetry are Her Familiars, Assignation at Vanishing Point, and Shepherdess with an Automatic. She is also the author of Daughters of Empire, a memoir of a year in Britain and beyond. Born in England, she teaches creative writing at Loyola. We think backward, don't we, women, writes Jane Satterfield, through our mothers, generations gone. Backward is the way her own poems think, sifting through traces of the past, the poet's own as well as a whole culture's, to reveal how forces such as greed and hypocrisy carry us away from what is most essential, the creative and passionate human self. 
with its canny repetitions, sharp ironies, and exquisite perceptions of what could so easily get missed, the smugness of a couple purchasing a Buddha statue, for example, or the struggle inside a woman in a pre-Raphaelite painting, Satterfield's language recalls us to our true natures. In a poem about reading Billy Collins with her daughter, she beautifully celebrates a poem as a monument, a field of meaning. We witness and we wake. Her own poems do that for all of us. Please help me to welcome Jane Satterfield. Thanks, Shailene, and thanks, um, Judy and Tracy and everyone um, at the uh, Pratt. It's um, terrific that there is such a um, wonderful space for literature in our city, and I'm always um, thrilled to, to come here. And thanks, everyone, for coming out um, on a busy uh, middle-of-the-week night. Um, it's fun to be here. Um, uh, I guess it was about a year ago, um, Celeste and I read at the um, book fair, which was wonderful. And um, one of the things that um, uh, we both enjoyed um, learning about each other was um, childhood. And uh, my father uh, was, a, was in the military. He was in the Air Force. And eventually, um, and he met my mother in, in England. Um, so my mother has this Irish, um, English background. And my father um, has an American uh, military tradition. And so um, that's kind of shaped um, the way I, I think about poetry. Um, so I'm going to start with a, a poem that is set. I was raised um, just outside of um, Andrews Air Force Base. So um, I'm a Cold War kid. So during the um, Vietnam era, I used to see all the planes coming back with the big red crosses. So it, it kind of made an impression. But this poem um, is inspired by that. Um, for years, my dad would drive around and have a um, kit bag in the back of the car, and it had a spare uniform, um, underwear, and a spare pair of combat boots. And the idea was that if his unit was called up at any time because there would be a war, he would be ready to go. I don't know what would happen to the rest of us. Someone would have to drive home, I suppose. But he was prepared um, with, this, with this kit bag. And I love the idea um, for a poem um, to, to call it Instant Combat Kit. At the same time, um, I was sent to Catholic schools. And um, if there, there's nothing like a Catholic school to give you a vision of the apocalypse. And um, so we were always told these stories about youthful martyrs who carried the Eucharist from one Christian community to the other at the end of the Roman Empire, and that they met their death in the streets um, as a refusal um, to give over you know, the emblem of the Eucharist. And as, as it, it sounds very compelling when you're a child, but of course, when you're much older, you realize they were carrying bread and people were starving. So those two forces of apocalypse came together in this poem, and it's called Instant Combat Kit. For years, my father's bag stashed in the trunk, leather worn raw, this side of suede, packed and ready in case, flight suit, polished boots, an instant combat kit, signed, sealed, to be delivered due east, the border, the base, the last battle left. How it hummed the air with imminent action, our house under the flight path, weekend war games, the enemy out there, 
always expected and just within reach through crosshairs and radar screen. And though it seemed unique to our age, apocalypse now, blackout, bombardier, passage of flame, really what's different? Just our hands on the switch. In the old dream of empire in late afternoon, the story the child saint raced into, a covert host in his cloak, is simply a case of street violence, and the body sent into the streets, stand in and look out, a shape divested of meaning, and the blows coming down until you see you have to forego it, reason, the right explanation, plot whispering, did you deliver what can be reached? I wanted to read, um, I thought it'd be fun to read a few poems that were um, more or less Halloween-themed um, or that had some kind of scary um, uh, backbone to them, and then I had a hard time deciding because the more you write about contemporary um, events and the more you look to the past, the, the more... Um, terror you can find. And of course, the challenge is, as an artist is to also balance that recognition of terror with joy. But this poem um, is called The Demon Lover, and it's based on um, an old murder ballad. And the plot, it has different variations, but the plot of The Demon Lover murder ballads is that a woman is seduced by someone who's a prince of a great land and the prince turns out to be the prince of darkness, and the great empire she's going to is the empire of hell. So this is the demon lover. The attraction was in the script's charged air, the path to the ruins, past the waterfall, and through the wind's incessant song. The mastiff alongside, its bared teeth nicking flesh. Like truth stepping out of a shiny black bends, he took her aside, unredeemed and unswerving in his arrow-straight course to perdition, bolster against the sometimes blue suffocating skies, potatoes to peel, and weight of the German text. Neither saw the rocks bristling far off in the bed of the stream, the breakers boiling at their base, a future broken into whirl and tumult, foam and noise. Proposals in the dark alley, sunken bridal veil, the real dark shores, all the more inviting because. I thought it might be fun to read um, a couple of poems that um, are, are new. And I'm glad that um, Celeste explained um, ekphrastic poems <laughs> very succinctly. Um, and this poem um, was inspired by um, a Civil War shadow box that you can see in the Maryland Historical Society. Um, and uh, it, it, I was very um, um, haunted by, by the image of, um, of that shadow box because the person who had created it kept going back to the battlefield to pick up de debris and kind of put this together into... Um, a very rustic-looking memorial. And I think that idea of trying to gather the bits of things and weave them into something um, that was a monument or left a ma lasting message was very compelling. Um, so this poem is called Elegy with Civil War Shadow Box. 
In the wake of the tower's collapse, there were emails and memos, strategic advice for teaching about terror. After a day off for mourning, with class back in session, from phone calls, floor meetings, and vigils, students were simply tapped out. In time, we'd send our support in the form of chocolate, baby wipes, and skin so soft to desert troops. But for now, collective dreams spattered with ash, comfort came in simply turning back to our work, one way to counter catastrophe. And in the days that followed, we wondered how to pay tribute to what is simply beyond words. Clearly, the question haunted John Philemone Smith, teacher and town historian, eyewitness at 17, to the battle that transformed his hometown from sleepy village to mass grave. Over the course of the 24 years that followed, in treks along Antietam Creek, across 12 miles of countryside, in sorties back to memory's terrain, to phantom gunfire and visions of riflemen kneeling on the bodies of the slain to fire at retreating survivors, into the ghost cries of a Gaelic charge from the Irish Brigade, the pileup of wounded and slow work of the burial crew, he gathered whatever the ground gave up, assembling a shadow box from battle debris, a folding camp spoon, Union uniform buttons, fragments of spent artillery shells, minet balls, a belt buckle, fragments of a bayonet. Across the back and sides of the box, in Smith's upright and legible hand, details of battles, news clippings, line from an official's commemorative speech, rhymed quatrains citing plenteous funeral tears, the neighing steed, the flashing blade, trumpet blast and cannonade, his hand-carved replica of the cemetery's private soldier monument placed front and center to create a compelling visual field, one man's memento of hope and healing that left out conflicts still simmering, segregation's mark in the veteran burials from world wars. I remember the heat-stunned and rutted dust of Bloody Lane, scant chirp of crickets, wind, a park ranger's period details, shells exploding the pacifist church where wounded were taken, the shallow graves common as cornstalks in family fields. The emancipated would wait more than a year for the state to rewrite the law and grant them freedom. Later, while slathering ears of silver cor queen corn with butter and salt, it was hard not to think of troops taking cover in cornfields, restless in the hours before dawn. Around our battered kitchen table, 20-some miles from that field, squabbles grown silent, my brothers with their biblical names, spared the call of conscription, bowed their heads for grace. Um, that's a poem from um, a book that is forthcoming, and it's called Apocalypse Mix. I guess I have a fascination with apocalypse. Um, and another poem from, from that collection um, is called Triptych, um, and it kind of flashes back to the year where, um, when I lived in England, um, which I've written about in prose in um, Daughters of Empire. And my daughter was born um, while I was there. So this is about an encounter 
um, I had there, and it's called Triptych. I had a day's underground pass, forms to be filed for your passport. Soon, we'd fly back to the States if your paperwork was in order. Your father stood watch in the embassy, ready to call us when needed, while I wheeled you round the garden in summer's equatorial heat. I shifted the sunshade over your face. Down the path, a stranger neared, shopping bags in her hand, headscarf adorned with flowers, petals scattering light and dark. In this time before fear was everywhere, what was the reason she caught my gaze? Nearly two decades on, my screen flickers with images of crowds and crusades, flags set aflame, placards facing off outside the same American embassy. Afghanistan's the graveyard of soldiers. If you want Sharia, move to Saudi. Rage tilts toward extremes. Citizens are advised to review the worldwide caution, stay current with media coverage. The camera pans across the rolling crowd, one side against the other, Londoners who'd banish all immigrants, Muslim protesters gathered in white. How to speak of what we share, what separates us. If there's a woman in the crowd, I don't see her. But I remember the day I waited with the pram, how you blinked as I pulled back the sunshade and you tugged your tiny bonnet, clenched fist unfurling. In time's reflecting pool, water gathers, builds to spill. That stranger, alone, hesitant, reached in to touch your face. What was her past? A dream of mosquito gnats, flashing rain, the cardamom pods she bought for her mother. She saw a mom with a pram and neared, touching the face of a stranger's baby, smiling as she said beautiful, as she said blessed. My daughter is kind of the inspiration for a lot of her poem, my poems um, recently, and um, she uh, often um, gives me assignments, um, <laughs> which, are, which is always fun and, and challenging. Um, the poem I'm going to read now um, was kind of a response to um, a uh, comment or, or sort of little argument we had. All, all parents want their children um, to, to read and read widely. And my daughter was on a kick of reading books that were um, the kind of like the middle school version of the Gossip Girl. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted her to do better. Um, and she kind of wanted to go the other way and do her own thing. Um, so while uh, my daughter and I were having this argument, my uh, uh, YA uh, novelist friend and I were sort of emailing each other um, just about our, our own little literary gripes, and she had just heard from an agent who told her that um, she was going to have to reframe um, the book she was working on because the heroine was dressed in trousers. Um, she wasn't fashionable enough, and um, the agent had said, you know, no young girl at 14 is going to be in trousers. She's going to have to be jazzed up a little, and, and Beth was kind of annoyed by that. So those two things um, kind of came together in this poem, which is a little bit about witchcraft. Um, it begins with an epigraph, um, and uh, it says, Matthew Hopkins was particularly fond of getting people to confess to having signed a pact with the devil 
people. The charges also included bewitching people or livestock to death, causing illness and lameness, and entertaining spirits or familiars, which usually turned out to be household pets. So this is her familiars. Just past her birthday, 13th, my daughter's engrossed with the antics of the pretty committee, whose swish bags in tow shop for amazing LBDs. So while I'm lamenting the mere fact it exists, this primer for learning popularity skills and the proper product lines, why not take a tip from today's radio guest who assures me the mommy makeover is a blessing for women not yet past their prime that a little time under the knife perks up the buttocks and pulls in the gut, erases the damage done by all that devotion to your little dears. Just the ticket to recharge my spirit and sex life. Ever notice how age or oddness offends? Same with widowhood or willingness to buck the trends. Just look at the woodcut, frontispiece to the discovery of witches, London, 1647, where one-legged Elizabeth Clark, whose mother, maybe witchy with words or wise with a cure, a heretic hung before her. After three days without food or sleep, Clark finally confessed the name of her five familiars, Holt, News, Sack and Sugar, Jamara, and Vinegar Tom, Cats, Rabbit, Spaniel, and Greyhound. Take Faith Mills of Freshingham, whose three pet birds wrought havoc by breaking a cart and inducing, by magic, a cow to jump over a sty. An affection for animals, it seems, in the eyes of the powerful, was as good as witchcraft, a grievous, read, hanging crime. Thank God the girls in the pretty committee all find the right dress and strappy stilettos, Thank God they Twitter and text to stay in step with the times. The pressures of fashion are many. The plot, my daughter says, will improve. Soon, one of the gang will be on the outs. From gossip, innuendo, and grievance, anyone can construct a watertight case. How came you to be acquainted was the favored question of Hopkins, the self-appointed witchfinder general, bearer of needles and bodkins. Puritan cloak and cape, the best accessories of his time. The feeble, the poor, and otherwise unpopular didn't stand a chance. From fees charged to the estates of the accused, he made a not unpretty profit. I think the last poem I'll read was um, one of the, was an assignment (laughs) from my daughter. Um, We used to um, go uh, help out um, family members um, who who had young children um, who lived nearby, and we would babysit. My my sister in law had um, three children relatively close together, so we used to. Um, Catherine and I would offer to babysit so they could um, have date night, and um, so the, their family had cable, which we did not. And they, so we often found ourselves watching the Cartoon Network after we put the babies to bed. And um, so there's this wonderful show called The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. And the premise of the show, which I kind of describe in the poem, is that the Grim Reaper is stuck in suburbia. 
So this is, I can kind of pass this around so you can see what the Grim Reaper looks like. And he has two, um, two uh, children who kind of like guide him through his existence. Um, but uh, he loses the bet. He gets stuck in the suburban town of Ennsville. And I thought that this would be, um, and Catherine said, oh, you should really write about it. And I thought, I have nothing in common with the Grim Reapers stuck in suburbia. <laughs> The Grim Reaper, stuck in suburbia, hmm. So um, I ended up with the poem, Mensville. Um, I love games, and I never lose, so yes, I am grim. Now I've lost a bet for a hamster's soul, and I'm stuck in Ensville. Best friends forever with Billy and Mandy, a mean-spirited girl with humor so black it splits the skull. Sure, I'm a walking skull and bones, but don't I have dignity to lose? Billy thinks it's a dress, this black robe which adds to my grim appearance. Kiss, kiss, says Mandy, to me, the reaper, held hostage in suburban Ensville. How strange it is to watch days pass in Emsville. Grim's it, shrieks Billy, that numb skill, while he hides in the curtains with Mandy. How I miss the simple pleasure of cutting a soul loose from this world. Gone is the guise of my former grimness. Now I drink coffee each morning, black. I'd like a party on the boombox a little back in black as the goddess of chaos arrives at the Ensville Mall. That ought to up the ante on this grim destiny. With a bit of skullduggery, I could end this purgatory as loser extraordinaire, command a little respect. A swing of the scythe would send Mandy to Nirvana or Lower Heck, a land black as murder. Let her lose face for a change. A fiend like me could go mad in Ensville, which has, by the way, no chapter of skull and bones to fill my social time. A grimace suits me just fine when I've no grimoire in hand. That's a text best hidden from Mandy who calls school a duty dance with death. A black sheep in Ensville, or does someone have a screw loose? Grim, she says, lose the gloom, and learn to groove the Mandy way in Ensville. She hands me her guitar, black fender with a skull. Thank you. This is the part of the evening where you all get to ask poets. Thank you so much to both of you. Really, really beautiful readings from both. Um, so, um, oh, and we're recording for a podcast. So, if you have a question, I'll bring you the mic so we can capture your question. Would anyone like to start us off? Wonderful poems, by the way, and I would like to know how long is the creation process of a poem? Um, you can, I guess, talk about either one that you already have planned out or maybe one that you don't and you're just looking to write something. Uh, sure, 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 sure. I can start. Um, the question, I don't know if everybody heard it, it was uh, how long How long does it take to create a poem or one that we already have in the churn, so to speak? I mean, I think the answer varies, right? I think, you know, some poems 
I have written poems in one setting. I've actually, uh, I think the quickest time it ever happened, I went somewhere, something happened, I came home, it took maybe two hours for me to sit down and pen something, and I kind of ended up staying with that. That's a rare occasion, though, let me just say. (laughs) Um, Most of them end up in bits and pieces, um, constructed over time, right? You know what I mean? And so you have an idea, maybe, that you think is going to make a good poem, but Maybe it doesn't turn into a good poem, and then you save it, and it ends up somewhere else. I mean, the the answer isn't very straightforward, right? You know, I've also had poems that I've been working on uh, maybe for two years, right, that maybe haven't totally come to completion. So I don't I don't know. For me, um, the childhood poems, the ones that are in my first book, Cornrows, a lot of those came um, over the course of years, right? Um, I was working on them and building them, but I was going back to them and sort of tinkering with them. And so I don't know what, what Jane's process sort of is, but she also writes about childhood, as you can hear. So, or child, childlike things, maybe. Childlike, is, things, childlike right? things, maybe, is what I should say. But um, so I think the answer just varies for me. I think there's no one set method in any way for me. Yeah, my process is, is very similar to that. I think the, um, I, I cannot imagine that I've ever written a poem in any less than two hours on that miraculous occasion where, where a poem does come into being pretty, pretty quickly. But if they come into being quickly, I think it's because they've sort of been circulating in your consciousness for years and there's some something that happens in the outside world that kind of triggers the impulse and also the music for the poem to, to enter the world fully. Um, so I think it's very difficult to sit down, um, at least for me, and just out of the blues start writing. I tend to be a saver of language and phrases and images and ideas. Um, and then later they will they will come to fruition. That's a great question. That's my student. Uh, <laughs> gold star. <laughs> or two. Uh, some writers say that uh, it's work, and they, they write so many words per day, beginning at a particular time of the day, and then they stop uh, at a prescribed time sounds like poetry is a little bit different. Um, so do you have a particular time of day? Is it on a regular schedule? Or can you not crank out a thousand words per sitting, per setting on your way to an 80,000 word transcript or something? I think that um, the people I know who do those kinds of um, set hours per day or set words tend to be prose writers rather than poets. Sometimes, I don't know if poets have, you know, maybe we have short attention spans. Yes. (laughs) Could be. Um, But the other maybe more positive way of looking at that is that um, poetry is very portable. Um, You can do a lot in your head um, I think, and, and, in your, and in your heart, and then kind of carry that with you. And then when you get to the page, things can move very quickly. But I think when you're writing prose, and um, especially novels, you do need to have your um, yeah. people talk about butt-in-the-chair time. Um, and novelists have to do that, and some of them will spend you know up to eight hours a day just cranking out the words and setting down the scenes. But that's not an effective method for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think Jane, Jane was very politically correct. I, I would totally say that poets are more, uh, they have greater cases of ADD, I guess you would say. And, um, you know, prose, 
prose writers, all my fiction friends, they also do that sort of uh, three hours in the morning, you know, 20, 20, 2,000 words per, I don't know, whatever, you know, per day or something like that. I mean, that's a lot of um, work, I feel like, for poets because we just, even the poems, I mean, the poems are like one page. So even even that takes, you know, hours or days or whatever to kind of construct. So it's a different sort of process, I sort of feel like. Um, But for me, in terms of writing or when I write, um, I like to write at night, like a night owl. I like to write when nothing's moving and the phone's not ringing and I don't have to go get groceries or anything. So I like to write like either really, really early in the morning or really, really late at night. So uh, those are the times. But never have I been a person that, you know, five days a week I get up for two hours in the morning and write. That's not, it just doesn't happen that way for me. So this question is initially for um, uh, for Jane and then uh, Celeste as well. Um, the last poem that you read um, about Bill and Mandy, um, could you talk about the form? It sounded like a Sestina, um, but could it have been a It is a Sestina, okay. Okay. three gold so, stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was just wondering if you guys could talk about the forms that mm-hmm. show up in your books and which forms you return to and yeah. how you work in and uh, subvert or just manage form in your in your poems. That's a great, great question. Um, I'm glad, glad you noticed it. Um, there's sort of a running joke that all poets have to write a Sistina, right? And so I feel like, well, now I've done mine. Um, every once in a while, I get the idea to do it. And this is an example of a poem that um, I prepared um, words for probably about two years before I actually wrote the poem um, because I'm not, I tend to write in free verse primarily. Um, and I'm married to someone who writes primarily in received forms and metrical verse. Mm. And so one of the things that I've noticed um, is that he is able to, um, you know, my spouse is able to um, write poems relatively quickly in a way that I'm not, because he can identify which form will best, the music of which form and the pacing of which form will fit the impulse of the poem. Um, With my poem, with my Sistina here, um, I was at a residency, so I was able to go in and out of the poem um, and work solely on that poem for over the course of like eight hours, up and down and in and out and walks and things like that. But it was like there was no other obligations that day. And so for a formal poem for me, that went together very quickly. Um, I tend to, and I found through residencies that I tend to write more in, in lines with what many composers do, that it's like musical phrase by musical phrase by mm. musical phrase. And that can take a long time for that, you know, first of all, for you to find that music and then for the music to build its own integrity and pacing. Um, my husband always says, like, I will never, I hate writing free verse, I can't hear the music. You know, he wants to hear the music in advance and know how that works. Um, but I've written, I like prose poems. I've written a lot of prose poems. I have a whole book of prose poems. I like that form. Um, and uh, um, I've, in, in this book, Her Familiars, I've um, got a number of repeating forms that, that I like to work with. Um, puzzles and villanelles, those forms I think are a lot of fun. Um, and, and they can be a little bit more free verse rather than some of the, the stricter forms. 
Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't remember the beginning of the question. I, I remember it was forms Twins, and yeah, 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 forms and whether or not you 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 love like them. Or, which forms do you work in? Which ones do you return to? How do you kind of work with form in your, oh, in your book? Okay, yeah. Um, I don't necessarily return to any one form consistently. I write free verse. Um, what, uh, what's in my book? Uh, there's sonnet. There's uh, Cuzzle. There's, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Abacadarian. There's, you know, um, sort of all the forms that I sort of teach to my students. I think, tool, you know, forms are a, are a tool, right? A way of fitting uh, a good poem into the right vehicle, right? You know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, I don't know, if you're trying to fit your body into a compact car or a Lincoln, right? You know what I mean? I mean, it depends on what form, you, what vehicle you want to take. So um, I don't think that I'm necessarily returning to any specific forms, but um, I would say the second book is a little a little different. What I'm working on for my second book of poetry, which is not even totally fully conceived yet, but um, I think it's just about learning what the poem calls for and being able to hear that, kind of like what Jane's saying about her husband is, you know, he says he can't hear the music. I can hear the music both in accentual syllabic forms mm-hmm. and in free verse. So I try to use both. That's what I try to do. Whatever speaks for the work. I think. And many people think that free free verse, um, you know, uh, is has no um, right. That's not metrical true. basis, it's not and true. it's not not true at all. Yeah. Most of us work off of some kind of loose I am or accentual principle. Um, and so getting that to work in, in some way is often what takes a long time for a poem to come together. I agree, totally. Yeah. 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 This is a good question. That is good. Maybe one more question? Oh, there was. I'm struck in, with both of your work um, the way that, you know, Celeste, you describe. Um, the work of other people, your father or a chef or uh, Jane, you know, you describe things that come up as, you know, with parenting. And it seems like um, poets um, can be really rooted in the small things uh, around them, you know, whereas I never, you know, find that kind of inspiration (laughs) in the everyday. You know, how does that happen? Uh, I, I do think poets, as I've said uh, before, I think poets do find totally inspiration in really tiny things. I think many, I've had friends say before, don't, you know, don't go out with Celeste because you'll end up, something you say or do will end up in a po- <laughs> No, really, friends have been terrified, right? You know it's what I mean? It, and, <laughs> and, it is, and, it, and it is kind of true that things, that life does provide a lot of inspiration for my poems. So, but it's not that I'm looking all mm-hmm. the time. That's the odd thing. It's just that these little things sort of are coming up and I'm sort of collecting them out of the sky. You know, Jane's um, poem about the uh, the kit, right? The, uh, the instant combat kit. Yeah, yeah the yeah. instant combat kit about collecting things, right? I think that in a lot of ways, poets are kind of collectors. I also said mm-hmm. um, Sunday when I was at Politics and Prose that I think, you know, I don't know, a lot of poets are OCD and they have like compulsion issues and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, I collect things. I collect shot glasses and and magazines from, you know, we have all, all these little minute collections, you know, things that I'm thinking about 
simultaneously on a platform. You know, I remember when I re- used to read about uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and they mm. used to say when he painted, he actually simultaneously listened to jazz music, like, all the time. And I thought... That's kind of weird, right? You know, somebody who's doing visual art is actively listening to jazz music, right? I mean, like, and he could tell you all the songs that had gone on and he could, you know, all of that sort of thing. But I think um, artists, I mean, and poets as well, are always collecting these little, you know, we're always in the present moment, but we're also collecting these little Mm -hmm. bits and pieces, these little bits and bobs, as I would say, as we go along. And then eventually they snowball into some sort of like massive poem. I don't know. Maybe that's what I don't know what Jane thinks. Yeah, I used to joke around that um, I would have been an archaeologist if I didn't um, dislike getting my hands dirty. (laughs) Um, And and I think like time um, and history, um, you know, work toward vanishing, and that um, I think for many poets, I I know for me, there's so much about poetry which is about rescuing and saving and illuminating Mm -hmm. what's um, been made or rendered invisible. I want to preserve things. I want to honor um, the work that people have done. Um, So that's very much a a sort of impulse and that's kind of a curatorial or collective impulse. Yeah, absolutely. And I just read Kevin Young's book, Dear Darkness, and it is filled with odes to everyday things. He has this wonderful poem called, like, Ode to Grits, Ode to Pepper Vinegar. It's like Neruda. Neruda does, I mean, Ode to Everyday Things. Why not? Why not? There's so much that's against, um, you know, the world is so full of pain. Why not preserve joy, too? And why not find great greatness in the little things you do every day? Um, Well, that's a beautiful note to end the Q&A on, and there will be more time for some questions afterwards. Um, would, you, would you like to read some closing poems? You can just read from the table. Um, but before you, before you do, um, I just wanted to thank everyone very much again for coming, and thank you to our wonderful poets. It's been a really special evening, and I wanted to tell everyone that their books are on sale just on the table right outside here, so please stop and purchase a book. Um, if you can, and also outside the room here, there are some um, evaluation forms. And if you can take a minute and fill out a form about your experience, that's helpful for us in planning programming. And one last thing, there's an email sign-up list out there. And if you give us your email address, you won't miss any um, exciting poetry programs that we have. It's just a poetry programming email list um, for this library. So we'd like to get you on that. So, um, yeah, thank you. And I'm going to let Celeste and Jane finish evening for us. Okay, so I don't know how many uh, we're supposed to read. Maybe two? Two piece. Right. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm like, I'm um, thinking about what I should, what I should read. Um, I'm going to read, um, there's lots of, there's lots of poems in my book, as I sort of said, about pop culture. Um, there's pop culture references. Uh, both Jane and I realized the first time that we read about a year ago um, that we both uh have many parallels in common. Um, Jane was talking about military family. My father's ex-military. Uh, we talked about Catholic school, right? And then uh, I have lots of pop culture uh, poems in the book. So 
Um, this is one of them, one of the pop culture icons that uh, pops up in the book. It's a tribute to Michael Jackson. Many of you, I guess everyone in the room probably knows Michael Jackson. Um, but this poem is really about the Wiz, right? Um, <laughs> the Wizard of Oz I always watched as a little girl, and I also watched the Wiz. Um, but the Wiz was always like... I don't know. I mean, you know, they're two. Obviously, they're two different movies, but they're you know the same, telling the same same exact story. But the Wiz was always odd to me because as a little girl, I always thought that the relationship between uh, Diana Ross and Michael Jackson seemed odd to me. Even when I don't know if I was like clairvoyant, maybe when I was young, or you know, I mean, it seemed a bit um, strange, right? You know what I mean? And then as I got older, I learned that they were good friends, and and perhaps. Uh, I don't know what else, whatever else you might think. I don't know. But anyway, they had a, a deep friendship and a deep kinship, I guess, as I will say. So anyway, um, and when Michael Jackson sort of passed, you know, they uh, obviously Diana went to the funeral and I was just thinking about that relationship. And so this is a short little poem um, about, I guess, about that their relationship. It's called and it's based mostly on the whiz. It's called Dear Dorothy slash Diana. Dorothy, it was always about the scarecrow. It was never about you and your tired red shoes, clicking themselves into a wish, sparkling into darkness. You whined about Auntie M and Uncle Henry while he wished for more between his cranium walls and spaghetti. You loved him then as you do now, his fuzzy afro and dandelion straw hat sticking out of his pants like a dream. Even the child in me saw the whimsical way he gazed at you, his brown fingers interlocked with yours. I loved watching you two ease down those bricks, unstoppable, headed for the wizard, skipping down a road full of demise, a road full of promise, on a quest to be more than shooting stars, leaving your dust behind. And perhaps the wizard didn't know, but you did, Diana. You knew how fleeting his star was. Even if he found his brains, his bright light was already beginning to wane. Not you, the tin man, the lion, or the dancing trash cans could save the scarecrow's delicate orb of light. He was always a constellation speeding nonstop towards heaven. That's great. Uh, Jane, maybe, do you want to read and then I'll come? Sure. Well, I'll pick up, I think, a little bit on the theme of Diana, only a different Diana. Oh. oh. <laughs> um, and this is a villanelle, um, and it's called uh, One Kind of Purgatory. Um, many of us are familiar with the um, uh, inquest um, related to um, Diana Spencer's death. Um, and every few years, the question of whether she was murdered or whether um, her death was merely an accident comes up. And so this poem came out of that um, moment, constantly seeing that televised image. One kind of purgatory. It spins again, the revolving door, the princess and her escort, their hired car. What is the camera looking for? The driver. He tips off the camera core, drink in hand, then lingers at the bar. It spins again, the revolving door, while those who knew her write memoir. All's fair, they say, in love and war. What is the camera looking for? The evidence to settle someone's score? Ten years on, her death still seems bizarre. It spins again, the revolving door. I can't watch the footage anymore. The chase, two young lives reduced to carnage. What is the camera looking for, panning across the stagey Ritz decor, where lovers pause, eager to flee, ill-starred? 
It spins forever, the revolving door. What is the camera? What are we looking for? Uh, the purgatory poem made me think of this is why this is why it works because then you think of things and you're like oh this would be good um, purgatory you know heaven hell uh, the place in between makes me think about a poem in my book that I wrote for uh, my grandfather. Um, my grandfather's been deceased, what, over 20 years now? Um, and um, I'm, my father was originally born in Tennessee. So um, we sometimes when I was young, we would take uh, family trips to Tennessee. And uh, But what was really uh, striking to me, I guess you would say, about uh, my grandfather's funeral is that he had two funerals. My father, grandfather had a funeral up north, and then he mm-hmm. also had a funeral down south, which was... Um, strange to me as a, you know, as a young person, I guess you would say that I was like, two funerals? I'm not really sure. Um, but it does happen. And they were um, worlds apart from each other, right? The northern funeral was really strict and proper. And the southern funeral was like people falling out in the aisles, right? So um, this poem is, is sort of about that, but also about sort of, I guess, uh, realizing maybe the beauty in death, too. Um, it's just simply titled Granddad's Two Funerals. Uh, has two parts. One, In South Bend, the robed choir sang sappy hymns while the minister spoke politely about going home to the Lord. Mm -hmm. People dabbed their eyes as if they were in an ICU full of newborns. And I still fumed from a fight with dad where he blamed my lateness on getting all dolled up like my mother. The family limo outside waiting impatiently for me. Two. But in Trenton, Tennessee, even the air tasted different. No fancy limos. Dad and I didn't butt heads. And my brother and I rode silently to Mount Olive Baptist Church with the windows peeled down, humidity in our throats, and Tupac's shed so many tears looping in a tape deck. I wore open-toed sandals and a thin rayon dress as my brother took swigs from a Remy Martin bottle stashed underneath the driver's seat. It clinked when we turned sharp corners, and inside the church, a top-heavy black woman with a bad weave and tacky pumps, her feet oozing over the sides, belted out, his eye is on the sparrow. Those notes were daggers in my ears as dad's feet stamped so furiously, making me think the ground might open its jaws, devouring him and mama. She was his delicate bodyguard, a pillar that only turned when the preacher and family members finished reciting their memories and comical antidotes. And eventually, Dad, my Uncle Tommy, and six of Granddad's brothers lined up in two rows, the bumblebees circling their freshly cut heads, their faces heavy with sweat and tears, and carried Granddad's body right out of that church like eight shiny-suited black Cadillacs headed home. Oh, man, that's great. (laughs) Um, I think I'll do a quick poem from um, my forthcoming book, um, called uh, Apocalypse Mix, and um, it's not quite um, two-pack, um, but um, the rock star, Ooh. nonetheless. Ooh. So um, this is called Ideal for Living, and um, the poem's um, a little bit of an elegy for um, Ian Curtis, um, who is a singer and songwriter for um, the uh, punk band Joy Division. Um, and it takes place in the mall. Uh, 
um, an ideal for living. Beneath the flicker of fluorescent lights, the auras of perfumed tea, double strollers block the aisles. Looks like we'll linger here a bit beneath the gaze of flower-garlanded mannequins. Dear lady of the artfully wrinkled Bermudas, destroyed matchstick jeans and ballet flats, why is it this season's psychedelic orange makes me think of detainees in stress positions? Suddenly the volume's up and I hum along. Love will tear us apart. How is it I've arrived here, teen in tow, dear dressed to impress with the vintage field army watch, the studded leather belt? And what of ruined epileptic Curtis, winner in the suicide sweeps, Curtis who crooned against a throbbing bass line's frontal assault, Curtis who didn't live long enough to hear his single, all-time great alt-rock anthem, become mere background noise. How come I hear the song as I first did, authentic on cassette, become um, the dark tape spooling through my battered Walkman? Dear dressing room with the hidden cam, dear, but I digress. The joke seems less witty now. As pressed for an answer, I tell my daughter what joy division is. Nihilism, wordplay, speak for concentration camp, prostitution wing. Not the work of meaning, but the making of meanings. In the afterlife of that atmospheric baritone, Baritone, my teacher's discount buys me a black dress, my daughter a headband of shimmering silk. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.